Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, June 29th here in New York City. Hope everyone is staying safe and they are healthy as the coronavirus pandemic battle wages on. I am pumped and super excited about the podcast today. I am joined by Emma Bachelary, who is a reporter at Sports Illustrated who covers all things baseball for them. She has written some of my favorite pieces in the last year, and she's been covering all things baseball from the negotiations to the return of play, and just and she'll be covering the baseball season. So I was pumped that, that, that she took the time to join me and kind of talk all things baseball with me for the first 30 minutes of today's podcast. And then I was later joined by my good friend and former college teammate, Elijah Wilson. He is a Liverpool football club super fan. And Liverpool, for anyone who doesn't know, plays in the English Premier League. They just won their first league title in team history. So he, I was great to have him on to talk about the, the journey that the team went on to reach this point and kind of just the magical season it's been and what's coming up next. So in terms of recommendation corner, before we get to the interviews, I finished The Victory Machine by Ethan Sherwood Strauss. It's a book on the Warriors dynasty. I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in it. It's a great 4th of July read. Very quick, very, very engaging. I learned a lot from it, and you definitely learn a lot about how the inner workings of of the NBA and how things really get done and that it's it's different than what we necessarily think uh, happens. So that, if you're looking for a quick read for the weekend, I've also picked up another book. It's it's uh, Too Big to Fail by Aaron Ross Sorkin. It's about the financial crisis. So that will be a bit of a longer read, a bit heavier read, but I'm looking forward to it. So that's the end of Recommendation Corner for this week. I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back, I will be joined by Emma Bachelary who is a Sports Illustrated baseball writer, and we'll be talking all things baseball. On the phone now, joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, Sports Illustrated baseball writer Emma Bachelary. She's been covering baseball's response to the coronavirus pandemic and has reported and written extensively on some of the major issues facing the league. I'm so I am thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Emma, how's it going? Uh, not bad. Finally, plenty of baseball news. So that's a, a something. <laughs> right, right, for sure. So I guess let's just get right into it. Last week, Major League Baseball and the Players Association announced their plan to return and start the season. Training camps start July 1st. Opening day will be held either on the 23rd of July or the 24th, and there will be a 60-game regular season. I don't want to jump to the conclusions that baseball is officially back yet because the virus is in control, not baseball, but can you kind of summarize what has been announced so far about baseball's return? Yeah, so uh, if baseball is back, we at least know what it'll look like, even if we don't know for sure that it's actually happening yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the big thing here that kind of separates MLB's planned response versus the NBA's or NHL or MLS, uh, is that baseball is not trying to do a bubble or hub cities. It's trying to go ahead and have teams play in their home stadiums across the country, which, um, as you might imagine, it invites a lot of, um, 
logistical complications just right. because that is a lot of different um, public health departments to have to line up with, lots of different regulations to have to meet, lots of different areas experiencing lots of different uh, levels of spread of the coronavirus in, in the area. Um, and when you're not implementing a system where players are, you know, supposed to live in some form of a bubble, yeah, uh, you know, baseball has put together these operations manuals where they recommend that players not to go to crowded bars and not seek uh, big public events, but mm-hmm. there is nothing to stop them. This isn't like the NBA where you're at Disney world and you're stuck at Disney world and right. it is very hard for you to go seek that. This is basically just kind of the honor system. And, you know, I think players of course take this really seriously and they certainly want to be back playing on the field, but mm. it's a lot of people. Um, 100%. You know, yeah, these are big rosters. It's obviously it's not just the players and and managers and coaches. It's all sorts of different people. It's support yeah. staff, clubhouse attendants. There are people who are doing laundry and making food. And I mean, there's a lot of people involved. And uh, when you're just kind of relying on everyone not to, uh, to to try to limit their own exposure as much as possible, and you're playing with 30 teams in 28 cities. And moving around a lot, uh, it, it does seem very possible that, you know, there are lots of opportunities for the virus to put, to potentially make its way in. Yeah. Um, and that sets up kind of a, uh, a dynamic that will have a, a lot going on in it as baseball tries to move forward. Yeah. And it's, and it's been interesting to see now kind of as, you know, they've, they've reached these agreements on these proposals and these plans, but for the last few months, the negotiations between the league and the Players Association has been very confusing to just baseball fans and sports fans in general. And it kind of seems like that this kind of could have been solved at least weeks, maybe months ago. And, you know, while there's a lot of moving pieces, not really that difficult. What were kind of like the main issues that caused such a prolonged negotiation period? Yeah, it, that's one of the interesting things is, like you said, it was a, a very long uh, hiatus without much information about what was going to happen. And all of the back and forth that was going on in that, that month, six weeks, was about the finances of returning to play, not the safety or the yeah. you know, logistics. Um, and, you know, now we're seeing a kind of, it feels like suddenly in the last week, there's been this renewed focus on well, even if we've financially agreed to play, how do we figure out how to do this safely? Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, for for the majority of that time, the negotiations between the players union and ownership was based around um, what players were going to get paid for Mm -hmm. the season and uh, what that was going to look like. So originally when stuff had shut down in March, uh, the players and owners came to an agreement uh, that would basically the players agreed to prorate their salary for the yeah. season for the number of games played. Um, and there is a lot of back and forth on, you know, whether the owners would be able to pay them less than that, uh, whether they could try to sweeten that deal with other concessions, like giving players more playoff money, money mm-hmm. expanding the playoffs, um, all sorts of things around that. And finally it came down to after all of this, um, you know, a 60 game season, which is much less than what the players were proposing. Much, just, much less. You know, 
yes, two weeks ago, I think was uh, the players had their 114 game proposal. Yeah. Um, and now we're looking at a significantly less than that. Yeah. Um, but for the players to get that full prorated amount of their pay for their 60 games and also for the players to reserve their right to file a grievance against the owners if yeah. they choose to for how this was negotiated and uh, determine whether MLB and ownership was negotiating in full good faith. Yeah, um, yeah that, that so. kind of brings me to, to my next question there, Emma, because I, I think if you could summarize one word uh, to describe or use one word to describe the relationship between Major League Baseball and the Players Union, that were to be contentious. And because yeah. the as, as you were mentioning, the players viewed the delay as almost entirely the owners having over the money that they were contractually obligated to give the players, and the owners thought that the players should uh, also be sacrificing even more because the owners were sacrificing money in this shortened no fan season. The collective bargaining agreement expires at the end of the 2021 season. Do you think that the tone of these negotiations, the these last few months here may be a preview for an even more contentious negotiation period for the new CBA? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think even if none of this had happened, if there had been no pandemic and 2020 had been normal, um, I think we would have been cruising for a, a very contentious renegotiation of the CBA at the end of next year. Um, and I think this kind of just heightened the distrust from both sides. Okay. Um, the frustrations, I think that, you know, the, the core issues for the CBA are, are still here. I think players have a lot of questions about the future financial model of the game and how it's changed and what you can expect as a veteran player and how much you make when you're still under team control. Um, and all of that is still there uh, to be worked out. But there is just so much animosity, I think, on both sides. And um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be pretty. No, not pretty at all. And and kind of as you mentioned now that kind of the finances part has been solved between the two, everyone's thinking about safety now. The safety of the players, the coaches, the support staff, the respective families as as many star players have spouses who are who are pregnant this this summer and you know, are they going to be there for their for their first child's birth? I think Mike Trout especially for that just like how is the whole family situation going to stay safe? One of the issues we've seen in college sports is each school having a different set of safety protocols. Just you, you mentioned, you know, that the league is encouraging uh, players not to say go to a crowded bar, but just what type of safety protocols is baseball putting in place? How are they being enforced? And is it uniform across the entire league? Yeah. So there are a, a lot of precautions they've put into place. Uh, I think the question is just, you know, it, it, is anything enough, even as much as they've put in here. So there are all sorts of things from, you know, the, the way that players get to the field travel has been, you know, kind of totally reworked in that, uh, guys are no longer allowed to use public transit to get to Mm -hmm. a home ballpark or an away ballpark when they're flying. Um, I just, all of these, uh, really strict things around that they can no longer be served meals on planes they get like a they get an individual bag of snacks um <laughs> yeah and you're not you're not allowed to eat um well players will be spaced in their rows no one will be in yeah. the middle seat but only one person in each row is allowed to eat at a time that's um, weird yeah so basically like if you know you're in the window seat you're allowed to eat your snacks and then once you're done and you're no longer 
eating with your mask off, you put your mask back on and whoever's two seats down in the aisle seat can then start to eat their snacks, uh, which is just, it, I mean, I, I do think that makes sense given what we know about uh, how this spreads, but it also feels very preschool in a way, like yes. taking turns to eat your snacks. <laughs> um, so there, there, there's stuff like that. Um, on the field, there, there is a bunch of stuff with, um, you know, they won't have to wear masks on the field. They can if they choose to. But um, the dugout will be spaced out. Potentially, we can see guys actually sitting in the first few rows of the stands rather than in the dugout. The bullpen, um, they will have in stadiums, the seats around the bullpen, the stadium seats will be able to be used by relief pitchers when they're not warming up. So if you see one guy warming, you know, that one guy will be warming, his bullpen catcher will be in there. There will be a, a coach in there with them. But the other relievers are going to be sitting in the stands, so they're not crowded around. Mm-hmm. Um, all sorts of stuff like that. And there is a consistent uh, one basic operations manual for the entire league that's supposed to govern all of this. But teams are able to kind of add to that. Um, each team is allowed to kind of create its own code of contact, okay. code of conduct specifically for off the field behavior. Gotcha. Um, and that's kind of one of the ways that, that that's the biggest area where MLB has sort of passed the buck onto the teams mm. in the operations manual. It specifically says, you know, MLB's position here is not to limit any players activities off the field. The teams will be able to decide that on their own um, kind of in conjunction with the player rep for the union on each team, a joint uh, decision gotcha. team by team on, you know, if a team wants to stay like, you know, if you're if you go to a bar, even if you go to a restaurant, um, a, like a coffee shop, if you go out to buy a pack of gum or something, you, like yeah. the teams can set this the way they want to. Like you'll, you'll be fine for that. Um, yeah. So we've yet to see how any team wants to interpret that. Mm-hmm. You know, if there are some teams that want to to go really strict on that, if there are some teams that are going to kind of leave it mostly up to trusting players to use their best judgment. Um, but that'll be something I think we see as. Uh, spring training gets underway and we get closer to the start of the season yeah so i want to shift gears here and talk about the actual on the field baseball part of things which i just find more fun to talk about so training camp or you know july training instead of spring training starts july 1st at teams respective home ballparks in their home cities so not down in florida or or arizona and it's going to last about three weeks Traditional spring training is much longer and it's mainly, you know, for any listeners who don't know, the reason why it's so long is for pitchers to stretch out their arms and to build the the strength for the whole season. And one of the major issues that baseball is facing is arm injuries. Are you hearing any concerns from pitchers or from teams that this ramp up period is too short and will potentially lead to even more arm injuries? You know, I think the biggest problem here isn't actually that um, this period is too short. It's that what players have been doing during this layover can vary really widely, right? Yeah. Like, there are some players who went home to areas where they were able to basically continue a regular throwing program. I mean, there were some guys, especially in April and May, when there was no idea when stuff was going to get started, that guys were just throwing, if you were a starter, you know, throwing every five days and doing a bullpen session in between like the same way you would for a regular season Mm -hmm. Um, versus you had other guys who either didn't have the physical resources, depending on where home was for you. Yeah. Um, You might not have had even as a major league player space to go throw the way you would normally throw. 100%. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah. Or, you know, just for whatever reason, if, if you anticipated that this layover was going to be long enough, that maybe at the beginning of this, you talked with your pitching coach and decided I'm going to kind of ease myself down from where I was starting to have fully ramped back up at the end of spring training. And I'm going to anticipate, you know, trying to ramp back up in a month, in two months. Um, I, I think that's the biggest struggle here is that guys did all sorts of different things. Um, and, you know, uh, pitching coaches have been in contact with guys, you know, managers and coaches have been in contact with their teams throughout this for in all sorts of ways with all sorts yeah. of advice on what to do. But, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of variation. Uh, guys are going to come back, I think in really different places yeah. and it's going to be hard to, I don't think there's any way to do a, like a consistent across the board program that makes sense Mm -hmm. and you know stuff has gotten increasingly individualized over the last couple of years for sure anyway but it's still just i think a real challenge in terms of anticipating what is each pitcher going to need how are you going to do this um yeah i mean i i think for sure that injuries are kind of top of mind for any pitching staff right now um and of course they will have these expanded rosters they'll have Mm -hmm. more guys to pull from but it's, I think it's definitely going to be a struggle to keep those staffs uh, at full strength. It could be. I would even consider yeah. it. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, it could be really interesting to see, you know, a pitching rotation where a couple guys can, you know, that they're on a pitch count of 55 pitches and then another guy who's had more resources available, he can go 95 pitches the, the first couple of weeks. That, that could be really interesting to see how that plays out uh, just with the first few weeks of, of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of stuff, um, even if everyone looks healthy, even if most guys were on your team were able to to have the resources to do what they would otherwise be doing throughout this, I mm-hmm. still think a lot of teams are probably going to be kind of cautious here and that we'll see more bullpen games, we'll yeah. see um, more teams embracing the opener, um, just anything to kind of cut down on, um, you know, how much each guy is throwing. So I think... I think we're going to see a lot of pitching changes, um, which might not make for the most exciting uh, stuff back. But yeah, it's definitely a big thing. Well, we'll speak about ex- exciting TV. So the season as of now is scheduled for 60 games, f- made up of 40 division games and 20 interleague games, but all aligned geographically to reduce travel. I, for one, am pumped for the interleague regional matchups, you know, the pitching, uh, pitting, you know, Mike Trout against Cody Bellinger, Bryce Harper against Aaron Judge, Garrett Cole against the Nationals' great pitchers of Scherzer and Strasburg. We're seeing efforts by the NBA to make sure that their uh, marquee games are going to be on, you know, national TV on ESPN. Are there efforts being made by Major League Baseball to drum up fan interest in this return by putting some of these awesome matchups on national TV? You know, I haven't heard anything specific about this yet, but I would be shocked if there isn't something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. That's a lot of really interesting stuff that it would definitely be in baseball's best interest to to market as much as they can and to put on uh, as big a stage as they can. Um, And so I'd imagine that that's probably also a a focal point of what they're trying to do here. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's weird to think about that. Had this been able to get off the ground earlier had the negotiations not been so lengthy i I do think baseball had a chance to be the first major team sport back in the u.s Mm -hmm. um and 
then it would have had that stage for itself. But now you're looking at, you know, it'll be coming back right as the NBA is, right as the NHL will be trying to, um, not long before football and uh, college football will be trying to get back. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting for sure that I, th- I think they had a great opportunity there and I think they kind of missed out on it, but uh, hopefully they're able to still kind of put that on as big a stage as they can. So in the league's effort to reduce travel, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to do that, but just the way that the, the league is aligned geographically, some divisions are farther spread out than others. You know, you take the NL and the, you take the NL and the AL East, for instance, they feature teams, not just in the, in the Northeast, but also Georgia, Florida, and also perhaps with the biggest conflict, Canada and the Toronto Blue Jays. Are there any discussions about whether some games may be moved to a minor league site closer geographically to the majority of the division? Yeah, and that was one of the things that was interesting to me about um, how the operations manual changed over time. Like, Mm -hmm. there was one draft of this that was put out in May as kind of a preliminary addition for players to review to make suggestions to. um, And then they released a final for now version uh, last week at the end of June. And one of the things they did insert was that MLB has the right to move, basically to move any team wherever it wants to. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So if you know, there's if COVID is surging in an area, if, if public health officials in an area decide, you know, this is an unnecessary risk, like mm-hmm. the county wants to shut down Major League Baseball. Um, if MLB thinks COVID might start surging, well, whatever it may be, the league can move a team from its home park to a minor league park to a neutral site. Um, if you're talking about the playoffs, they can play in another team's stadium who's already yep. been eliminated. Basically, all of that is now on the table uh, for MLB to try to set it up as safely as possible. Um, but yeah, the Blue Jays that you mentioned are a really interesting one because, you know, in the, the days after it was announced that players were going to have to start reporting to camp on July 1st, uh, it still wasn't clear if the Blue Jays would be able to play not just in Toronto, but anywhere in Canada. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, they were talking about Buffalo as an alternative spot because, you know, given uh, coronavirus right now, mm-hmm. Florida doesn't seem like a great place to be. No. So they weren't going to go to their spring training facility. So, yeah, I mean, that's just a great example of how, um, I mean, MLB obviously is extremely powerful. There's a lot of money behind this, but public health officials, um, you know, they have a say in this too. And if it's decided that a team can't play where it wants to play and they'll be basically is going to be able to move them wherever they want to interesting so it kind of seems like for, for all sports that there's going to be no fans in the stands at, at least for the probably the remainder of at least the summer of 2020 and this is one thing i don't really understand emma is some of the players you know who have said that they don't really you know want to be playing in front of no fans and you know just for the vast majority of players they have spent their minor, they spent their non-major league careers playing, you know, hundreds of games in front of very small or practically no crowds, either in college or in the minor leagues. You know, I think that that, that this is a, a non-issue. We see it in the European soccer leagues. The guys are still playing super hard. It's all high quality uh, game, even with no fans. But are you hearing anything from the player side that would prove that I'm just completely wrong on this? This was actually one of the more interesting questions to me um, earlier in this 
hiatus, I talked to mental skills coordinators around mm-hmm. the league about what they're working on with players right now. Um, and that was one of the things that kept coming up. Like, uh, you know, their duties were kind of split between just helping players mentally navigate through the uncertainty of May and June. But the rest of their work is focused on, like, how do you mentally adjust to play in this very different looking season? Yeah. And the idea of how to play without fans. Um, obviously, you don't need to do anything physically different. But for a lot of guys, there is a concern, like, how do I change my mindset to do this? Um, what is the best way to mentally approach this really weird, different environment? Um, yeah. But like you said, it's actually like the answer for a lot of them was you have done this before in college, in the low minors, you know, in high school, uh, you have played with either, you know, very few fans or maybe even no fans. And you obviously excelled in those environments to be here. Um, And so one of the things that a few mental skills coaches brought up was like talking to players about, you know, just kind of like tapping back into those experiences and how to like reorient themselves uh, into the mindset they had then just kind of, trying to generate their own energy, their own enthusiasm, Mm -hmm. uh, which, yeah, I mean, to your point, like, I don't think it's a huge concern for a lot of players, but it is something they realize it's going to be different and you need to plan for it. Like you need to prepare for it. Like they do, I think almost everyone I've talked to, you know, they recognize that it, it does mean a lot to have a crowd. It does create a really cool environment that, you know, doesn't provide all of your energy, but it certainly like enhances your energy and uh, kind of your mindset as you step on the field. And so it's definitely something they've been preparing for. uh, But I don't think it's something that most guys are overly concerned about. Interesting. Yeah. It it may be interesting to to see what, what these guys can do at at the plate when not, when, when they're not being heckled by some guy at Fenway or Camden Yards in, in the front row. But But so one of the very disappointing developments in the last year and has and has grown during the, the pandemic is the treatment of minor league players. Not only are many living below the poverty line, even in normal baseball years, but many teams have been inconsistent in their payment of minor league of minor league contracts during this pandemic. And even before kind of the virus hit, there have been proposals to, to shrink the number of minor league teams rather drastically. And we're, we're often told that the minor leagues are breeding grounds for the next generation of MLB players, and that's actually true. Even star players typically spend multiple years in the minor leagues before they get called up to the majors. Have you heard the MLB express concerns or plans for how a lack of a minor league season may be affecting the growth and mature and and you know the development of the next generation of major league baseball players? Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like. Uh there are a lot of minor league franchises who, you know, they obviously have connections to the major league clubs and major league clubs pay those player salaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but they are independently owned and operated and they obviously don't have big TV deals. They depend on revenue from fans, from, you know, having the gate open every day. And so a, a season without any revenue at all is probably going to put some of these teams under, um, unless there's some sort of program to establish financial assistance from MLB from something. Um, and that hasn't been discussed. That hasn't been set up. So, uh, yeah, as you said, before all of this started last winter, MLB was circulating a proposal to cut 42 teams. Um, and it, it seems like we'll see 
about that many, maybe more, uh, closed because they have to because of the financial conditions now and kind of give MLB what it originally wanted without them actually having to be in the position of doing uh, it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, which, as you said, like it, it, it affects player development. I think one of the areas that stands out to me and something I've talked about with players, I've talked about with some executives is fans, like the fan connections that people make, yeah. especially as, as a, at a young age with those teams can be really strong. Like the, um, I mean, the cost of going to a major league game, especially for a family of four has just increased and increased over the last couple of years as a lot of things have. Mm -hmm. Um, But minor league baseball remains pretty affordable for a lot of families. And for a lot of people, that's where they get their first connection with baseball. Um, And when you're talking about growing the game, about making it something that's accessible, that gives you a large fan base that, that starts by following, you know, their local minor league squad and watches those players as they move through a system and, you know, then becoming, MLB fans themselves, Mm -hmm. this absolutely has an impact on that. Um, And so I I do really wonder about what the effects are going to be on, um, I mean, both the way that players are developed, the system we see there, how players are paid at the minor league level, but also for for who watches baseball, for who baseball is accessible to, uh, I think this definitely has an impact on that. Yeah, I, I, I remember watching Robinson Cano play for the Staten Island Yankees. I'm a, I'm a New York City kid, so you know my dad would take me to those games. We watched Robson Cano play second base, and then four years later, he's you know winning the World Series, and I totally agree with you about the connection there. So Mike, last question here, Emma, and I, and I appreciate all the time, is this. In the years, in, in years past, to make the game more appealing to younger fans, baseball has tried a bunch of new rules, including limiting mound visits and even putting in a pitch clock and as a part of the the return plan for this year, baseball is implementing major changes such as a universal DH, so a designated hitter will now be in the National League. And in extra innings, there'll be a, a base runner starting on second base. What do you think of some of these new rules? And are you hearing anything about if they will become permanent after the 2020 season? Yeah, I think, you know, the universal DH is one that has been a topic of conversation for a while, like even before this seemed like it was probably going to end up coming up um, potentially in this new CBA that they'll see at the end of 2021. So that one, I think it makes a lot of sense for this year as you're trying to talk about limiting injuries for pitchers, like we were saying earlier, it seems like kind of a no brainer to just take that out of the equation for them Mm -hmm. and make sure they don't have to hit. Um, So I, I think it, makes a lot of sense now and it's something we were probably going to see anyways. So this probably just speeds up the implementation. Um, and I'd be surprised if we, we don't see that continuing on, uh, beyond 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm going to miss pictures sitting a little Me bit. Too. Um, <laughs> like it's, I don't know. I, it's, I have a soft spot for it. I realize it's not analytically sound. It's not from a like perspective of a, a fan who's trying to expand the game and appeal to fans i realize it's not particularly appealing but i've always loved it so i'll be sad to see it go um the runner on second for extra innings though i i'm curious about whether that sticks uh Mm -hmm. just because i mean we've seen this in a few um settings before they've used it in the world baseball classic uh they've used it in the atlantic league and independent ball and last year uh it was used at some levels of minor league ball uh, in the lower levels, uh, A ball, 
And so it's not something that's wildly appealing to, to me personally. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think that's uh, an unusual opinion. Like if you watch games with it, it doesn't really do a ton to speed it up. If anything, nah. it leads to a lot of sacrifice bunts, <laughs> uh, which to, to me is the opposite of yeah. exciting extra innings baseball. Um, so I'd be more interested to see if they do something like just declaring that games can end in a tie, which like honestly w- would be okay with me if you're talking about after the 13th, 14th, 15th inning. Yeah. Um, in Korea, games are allowed to end in ties. I think when you're talking about the regular season, which, you know, is such a grind anyway, when you have a, a full 162 games, having a few games end in a tie would be more palatable to me than having uh runners on second kind of trying to manipulate the outcomes for every extra inning um so i i think there's a couple of ways they can go with that there and i understand wanting to cut down long term after this weird season on Mm -hmm. uh the number of just games that feel kind of interminable um but that, that one i'll be more interested to see is that actually going to stick around because i'm not so sure i think they might talk about potential other uh answers there but i don't know if they'll settle on this being it interesting well i totally agree with you about the pitchers hitting if if anyone doesn't think pitchers should hit i i couldn't recommend more going on youtube and looking up bartolo cologne hitting and hitting a home run against san diego which was one of the best moments i think it was 2015 was one of the best moments of the entire season was watching bartolo cologne run run the bases and getting his his first hit emma I appreciate all the time for any listeners who are tuning in. Where can they go to, to follow you and to find some of your work? Yep. So I'm on Twitter at Emma Bachelary and I write for SI.com and in sports illustrated at the magazine. Awesome. Well, Emma, I appreciate all the time. Uh, really appreciate it. And good luck with everything going forward and covering uh, the 2020 baseball season. Yeah. Thank you so much. Coming up, I will be joined by Elijah Wilson to talk about his fandom of Liverpool, the title-winning season, and much more after the break. In honor of Liverpool winning their first ever Premier League title this past week, Joining me now on the phone is my good friend, former college teammate, and Liverpool Football Club superfan, Elijah Wilson. E, what's going on, man? Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me on, man. Of course, of course. So for, so for as long as I've known you, just for all the listeners, this goes back to freshman year of college. In the fall of 2016, you've been a big soccer fan with Liverpool being your team. Just how did you first start watching soccer and just like what made you fall in love with Liverpool? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story, um, because obviously in the United States, I think it's a lot harder for people to kind of be in touch with that, Mm -hmm. um, especially on the leagues, you know, abroad in England and France and such. But for me, I I actually really never liked soccer at all, you know, in high school. And and it was only one of my high school teammates who actually played a ton of FIFA (laughs) introduced me to the game and said like, this game is really fun. Like, I mean, like. And I always, I always kind of like hated on soccer. I was like, yeah, like it's whatever, whatever, because the typical American, um, you know, perspective. But he's like, no, you have to definitely try it. Yeah. So I ended up buying FIFA. It was discounted, which made it a lot easier for me to buy at that time and be encouraged. I played, and I watched. I, I think for a couple games I watched because I used to play career mode. 
mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd use some Premier League teams, and I started to uh, watch the actual games because I saw they were televised on NBC, and I, I started to appreciate, like, over time, like, the type of skill, the type of finesse, and just the type of, uh, really, like, the tactical... Uh, the tactical masterclass that a lot of these these 100%. managers and, and players were about, and I've always kind of been more of an analytical IQ guy in basketball, anyway. Yeah, so, for sure, Liverpool was came along based off of honestly watch uh, when I played uh, on FIFA. The, my, one of my favorite celebrations was Danny Sturridge is kind of like they called it riding the wave, uh-huh. um, but it's this like crazy hand motion thing <laughs> and. From there, I kind of just started watching their team. Um, it was in 2014, 2015, and uh, that that year they were, uh, or the year prior to that, they were really close to winning the uh, mm-hmm. the title, and they they slipped up a little bit. But um, really, after that, I mean, shortly after Jurgen Klopp was hired, and then the club just kind of continued to grow. And yeah, um, I, I think my appreciation for it, along with FIFA, just you know, steadily in, uh, increased yeah, so, you know, up until this point. Yeah, I, I was in kind of the same boat as a FIFA player and, you know, casual fan that once NBC bought the rights, they started broadcasting every game. It was weird. Like, right. just it was just like the group of friends I had in high school, just, you know, a couple were bigger fans. So, like, you know, I'm casually watching it and following. And I've, the first year I really followed was, like, was the, was the Leicester year when they won mm-hmm. the championship. And just, you right. know, you're getting introduced to it. It's, it's a new sport, you know, for any listeners just hearing about the Premier League for the first time in Liverpool, can you just kind of just briefly just describe what the format of the season is, how many games, and just how the standings work? Right. So it's it's uh, the twenty. There's twenty teams specifically in the Premier League, um, and they they each play um, each other team uh, twice, so that equates to thirty eight games. It's a point system, so um, the league table or, or standings. Um, is basically judged based off of points, um, mm-hmm. which is awarded based off of wins. Wins gives you three. A draw gives you a draw or a tie gives you one, and a loss gives you nothing. Interesting. Um, okay. And then after after the thirty eight games, whoever the most has the most points wins the league. And then placement also has to do with uh, European competitions, and then obviously uh, money rewards for each individual club. Yeah. So. One thing I've learned, and, and I think we, we might have talked about this before, but just one, one of the things I've learned while just watching more and more soccer and learning more about it is just European soccer, unlike any American sport, is ruled by money. The teams with yep. the financial backing or the resources have the money to spend big on the best players to to win titles. You know, for instance, for any listeners who don't know, Paris Saint Germain, who's the biggest team in France, you know, has Neymar and paid like two hundred fifty million dollars for him, is basically owned by the nation of uh, Qatar, who's hosting the World Cup. Manchester City, I think, is owned by Abu Dhabi. Saudi Arabia right. is buying a, the, the Newcastle team. Like literally, oil baron nations are buying soccer teams yeah. and like running them. They're like a, a extension of the sovereign wealth funds of, of their country. So, just who is Liverpool owned by? Do they have that type of financial? backing just how do they stack up and compete with these oil barren you know backed teams i mean i think one of the beautiful things about soccer is that you know you have just a a wide a wide uh kind of ecosystem of teams that are really based off of their local for the most part they're really based off of uh, where they are locally but Mm -hmm. i would say for liverpool and fsg which is um the same owners of uh, the boston red sox fenway sports Um, group yeah fenway sports group um, their, their model is a lot different. Um, it's a lot more grassroots. I think 
Liverpool had previously been um, owned by another American group, but essentially what, what's worked successful for, for, successfully for them is, is kind of starting at the grassroots level, um, picking the right manager and the person to head the club, and kind of making smarter financial decisions. Um, they don't have the same type of financial backing to kind of spend, you know, the the you know large sums of money on on transfer clauses um, and transfer fees as well as contracts. Um, I don't. I only think they now might have a player that just surpasses two hundred thousand, um, you know, dollars a week. Wow. Um, when Vandra Van Dyke, mm-hmm. but they. I mean, they basically a lot of their money comes in from sponsorships. Um, from European success uh, coming in the form of Champions League, um, the FA Cup, and the the League Cup. I think it's the, I think it's still the Carabao Cup. Yep. Yeah. Can't quite remember. Um, but those are really the only uh, and TV deals um, from like NBC with the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of like the main sources of money um, on top of ticket sales and other things. But they don't. They definitely don't have the same type of financial weight that the Man Cities of the world and even the Manchester United's of the world have. Um, and they have to do it differently. And you see that in a reflection of some of the transfers that they might have missed 100%. in the past. For instance, Olsen recently with Timo Werner, mm-hmm. they couldn't they couldn't afford to pay his, his wages just because of their um, you know their business model and their yeah. business structure. Yeah. So, and, but yeah, yeah. No, no. That that's super interesting too. Just like how teams are competing against each other. You know, Chelsea is owned by a Russian oligarch. Like, yep. and that's where Timo mm-hmm. Werner went. Like. The, the financial backing that some of these teams has is absurd. And, you know, we think that, you know, the top athletes in America make a lot of money. But when you look at right. it globally, the top the top European soccer players or, yeah, or, or the, the top soccer players who world, the, yeah. Yeah, the top soccer players who are playing in Europe make, you know, they dwarf the sums of the of the on field or on court earnings that the top American athletes make. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um and uh, I think one of the interesting things you, you brought up the you know the American perspective of sports are the way we you know we're, the way that basketball the way that uh, you know football even and even soccer the MLS is structured um, is oriented around really I mean on a simple level it's it's about making sure that there's um, some some sort of uh, quality between teams despite yeah. the fact that like for instance a New York team is in a bigger market uh, than you know like a uh, Milwaukee team, for right? Instance, for sure. Right. So, um, but it, it's it's definitely it's definitely a lot different. I mean, you you talk talk about a real global presence, mm-hmm. um, and and the type of competitions and, and global footprint these players have access to. Um, I think that 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 has a huge plays a huge component to it. Um, on top of the fact that uh, I, th- I really just think that you know internationally, I th- the way in which the most uh, most of the financial fair play and um, I think, you know, like the type of monopoly mm-hmm. uh, and, and fair, I forget, I'm, I'm just blanking on the, the specific term, but essentially uh, trying to ba- basically keep teams from, you know, overspending. monopolizing yeah. or overspending or dominating a particular market because they're because of their location, because of the access they might have to certain things. That doesn't right. exist in the Englands and the Frances and the Spains of the world. Um, and it allows, it then thus it allows the players to kind of, really leverage for themselves and ask for, you know, astronomical amounts of Very money. True. Very true. Um, because they can really utilize themselves as assets and prove them, them their wealth, both on the field and off. Another so. part of American sports that, you know, I, I kind of love is American sports fans and American sports teams uh, believe in curses. 
when when you first started rooting for Liverpool, they had won European championships and they had won, you know, English League championships, but they had never won an official Premier League championship. You know, the league was formed in the early 90s. Liverpool had, had never won. Was there this was there this feeling that Liverpool was cursed in a way or was it just or is that just not a part of the the English uh football, you know, vernacular? I don't I mean I mean, you could probably make an argument either way. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say necessarily. I feel like the club was cursed. Uh-huh. Um, I think there was. I mean, you can point to a number of circumstances and and things in the club that you might point to and say, like, you know, it was it was a little bit more difficult. And then you also look at you know the level of competition. Um, you know, for the last three decades, is, is you're gonna make you're gonna see that. Um, but I, I, as far as the curse, I mean, like. Maybe a little bit. I mean, we got lucky. I mean, there's some moments you could talk about the famous slip from Stevie G or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the missed opportunity to Crystal Palace that same year. Uh, you know, the year last year when we came within a point of City yeah. um, and lost in a, in a really record-breaking way. Um, I mean, you could make an argument that it's a little bit of a curse, but I, I think also it's, it's circumstantials and a little bit unlucky. Uh, but, you know... The business, the business motto, and and the type of coaches and players that the, the squad had in the last four or five years, and just the consistency and mentality, I think proved to, I think be a little bit bigger than a curse. One hundred percent. I'd be a little bit hesitant on the curse. It but, it, it, you know, it it is can't just escape it. it is just a little coincidental, at least to me. It that, is. It's in house, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that well, that. that that Liverpool's owned by Fenway Sports Group. As soon as they yeah. bought the Red Sox, they hired Theo Epstein. They break the the curse of the Bambino. Yeah, win, curse of Bambino, yeah. Win four World Series. Liverpool under them has also gone, you know, un- undergone an kind of like an analytical revolution as well, using analytics oh, better yeah. than any uh, English or really any European soccer team. Uh, there was a great article in that in the New York Times this past weekend by Rory Smith. But just so, you know, John Henry and Fenway Sports Group takes over. Obviously, the ownership can only do so much. But just who or what first started this turnaround? I mean, you have to point to the ownership. I mean, you you look at the owners right prior to to FSG, and um, you see the type of disarray and the you know disingenuous behavior um, that ownership can have, and you can see in sports. Um, I think you can see some similarities in the way that the Knicks are run. Um, just oh being speed, speaking as a New Yorker, but <laughs> yeah. um, I would say that you know their intention and and, and their genuineness, especially with a, a type of club that's so closely mm-hmm. tied to the culture of the actual city. Yeah, one hundred percent. They're they're in one that you know that type of um, like I said, genuine genuine approach is really important. And without that, you know, there could be the types of signings and the types of deals and money management. Um, or the types of success that the club can have. So I would definitely point to, to FSG initially. Um, I think beyond that, you know, you have to look at the manager. Yep. Um, Jurgen Klopp. I, I mean, I, Jurgen Klopp. I mean, I, 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 I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot, read a lot about different coaches from a lot of different eras, and there's really not too many people that I, I really can and put a, put much higher on the list of, of great managers and coaches than Jurgen Klopp. I mean, how he how he's able to do just about every aspect of coaching so well yep. from, you know, player management to actual coaching and tactics to the business decisions to, you know, just, just being that personality leading, being the face of the club and the pressure mm-hmm. behind that and doing it so successfully and, and seemingly seamlessly. Yeah. Um, is really just, 
I mean, it's he's a real. Un, I mean, he's not so unsung, but like he deserves so much, so much praise. One hundred percent. It's it's really remarkable watching watching him. Yeah. Um, so for just just for just for listeners who don't know, Jurgen Klopp is a German uh, manager. Uh, he was originally at Borussia Dortmund in Germany. Was a part of their rise to the top of German football, and I think they made the Champions League final under him. He's one of the best yep. co- coaches in the world, and he implements a unique style of play. You know, we're accustomed to like in the NBA, Phil Jackson runs the triangle. You know, Mike D'Antoni plays super fast and chucks a lot of threes. For for anyone listening who hasn't watched Liverpool play under Klopp, can can you kind of just describe his style or Liverpool's system of play under uh, Jurgen? Yeah. Uh, high tempo, uh, pressing, and just free flowing football. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a, a football style meant for you know the high, the highest quality and highest work rates of players uh, who press the ball to win it back, um, who will utilize their wing backs both offensively and defensively up and down the sides of the pitch, um, end line to end line. Uh, who has midfielders who are working box to box, has a center forward who will drop in and defend and win the ball back, um, as well as wingers who do the same. And it's just it's just a well-worked engine where pressing is, is the mentality to win the ball back, yep. um, holding the ball and counterattack, lots of crosses into the box, box yeah. as well. It's, it, the, what sticks out to me most when, when I watch them is just the speed of every yeah. single player on the field is just extraordinary to watch and just as a very casual soccer fan the story of Mohamed Salah is just unbelievably fascinating to me he's in an, an Egyptian winger who first started out in England at Chelsea was basically given up on got sent he got sent on loan and then eventually changed teams and found his form playing in, in Italy for Roma joins Liverpool in the summer of 2017 and like immediately becomes one of the five best players in the world. He scored like 30 goals or something his first year. Obviously a tremendous, yeah, obviously just a tremendous signing in hindsight. But just like, what did you think of just the signing when it got announced? Um, I mean, I, I had watched, I had seen Mohamed Salah play in the Champions League mm-hmm. and he... I didn't know a whole lot. I can't sit here and say like I, you know, I knew that this was going to be an amazing signing. I had hope. I had hope and, and definitely had some expectations where I expected him to be pretty good. But I mean, there's not a person on the world who would say signing Mohamed Salah that he was mm-hmm. going to turn into the player that he's become. Um, but I mean, I mean, hats off to the man. I mean, he, yeah. he immediately made some some wildly uh, impactful uh, contribution to the club immediately. On this, in this first season, breaking the Premier League record for goals in a single season. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just incredible, incredible, incredible influence. He also, um, just, yeah, he, he, he also plays with so much passion and just like he genuinely looks just happy when he's playing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, uh, I mean, he's a unique. Uh, he's definitely a unique player. Um, you definitely can see the competitive side of him. Um, I mean, you see almost in every time where he's do- he's not actually you know scoring a goal or successfully dribbling by people you can see the frustration and it's mm-hmm. um testament to where you know what he's been able to achieve but i mean as a human being as well i mean he i mean he was i think it was was it 2016 17 he was named on um to uh life magazine's top 100 most influential players in the world or people in the world I should say. interesting so like he i mean there's a he has a lot going for him and on top of you know his his physical and um, skillful ability. I mean, it, it speaks volumes to the, the type of impact that he's having, you know, beyond 
beyond the pitch and beyond just in England. So, and like the most one of the really interesting parts about just following the team from afar, you're obviously following the more of like the day to day parts of it was that it seemed like okay, you, you change managers, you get attacking players. You know, we talked about Mohan Salah, but you also had Roberto Firmino, you had Sadio Mane, guys who were incredibly fast who could press and just be really dangerous on the attacking side but everyone's like okay liverpool can score but they can't defend well then you then you guys go out and pay a world record fee it was like 75 million pounds for virgil van dyke this big i think he's like six three or six four dutch defender who immediately changed like the tune of the defense and was in the you know it's rare for defenders to be in the finalist for basically like the the world player of the year the the Ballon d'Or just right. when you're watching this this team just like almost like systematically just grow and develop and improve just like what's that like as a fan as you're watching them take these steps towards winning a, a title I mean it's 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 really crazy when you it's you only can really appreciate it when you look at it retrospectively I I've, I've tried to sit down and Think about when I remember, you know, having the, you know, the Skirtles and the Colo Torres, yep. uh, Mamadou Sakos of the world who were in defense with Mignolet and goal. And I just remember having, you know, having Firmino, Mane, uh, and Salah scored close to 100 goals altogether in all competitions in one calendar year, but then conceding a ton, ton of goals. And as you kind of like, as you see the signings and you see, you know, the point tallies go up in league and, you know, you're pushing Real Madrid into the, you know, the final of the Champions League. Mm-hmm. You really see how, you know, the commitment to to players and the project kind of takes, you know, takes shape. And, and it's, you know, it's testament to show like the business plan where you don't see like a ton of big money signings coming all at once. But then there's no. real commitment to kind of use, using the piece that's, pieces that you have and only adding where you really need them. Yeah. Um, it's really, really amazing stuff. So just so just as you know, th- this may be a dumb question, but, you know, in European soccer, unlike in American sports, where it's just like, you know, if, you, if you're if you an NBA fan, it's the regular season, then the playoffs. In European soccer, right. there's the domestic league where it's on the weekends. You know, the Liverpools plays the other British teams. You play Manchester United, Manchester City. But then during the week, you could be playing in a European competition. So, so just as a fan, how do you balance, like, the just your rooting interest of what's more important, like the, the Premier League title, like your domestic championship, or the, the total European glory i mean i think it what it boils down obviously to each individual club i mm-hmm. mean for liverpool like the history the re- more recent history points to the you know uh the trophy that hasn't been won in you know like i said three decades so that's yeah. gonna supersede but i think in general i feel like you know you you always you know deem the club success with winning and right you know that starts in the league that's uh usually the most televised and most watched matches consistently considering it happens on the weekend um but i think in terms of really pushing i mean you want to get into europe you want to play against some of the better teams in the world and you only have the opportunity to do that in the champions league and the europa league yeah um so i think for pride's sake and for culture's sake i think you know in england anyway that competition that local competition within in-house in country um is probably going to be one of the more important ones because that's you know you're bickering with some of your family members across <laughs> across the country and you're saying yeah like you know we we got the edge up on you this time right. whatever or, um but but i think uh european football is just like a cherry on top for sure but or even the body is definitely lead play or or even in the your family members in the same city as as liverpool obviously plays right. in liverpool england but everton right. is in the same city right 
Yeah, and you know that. Unfortunately, it's kind of been a, a you know a one dead a one ended uh, competition on that, <laughs> that front for the last like 20, 30, 40 years. But um, I mean, yeah, it's 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 a huge part of it, the the locality of it, and just that that type of interaction that you're going to have immediately with people in your family, your friends um, across the country is just definitely going to be more meaningful. Um, not to say that, you know, winning, winning, uh, you know, the Europa League or the Champions League is not a huge feat. And that is definitely should be celebrated. But um, there's something meaningful about kind of spreading your own success right. across your own individual country. So, country. so last season, so the 2018-2019 season, we saw Liverpool, as you said, they battled valiantly in the, in the league, came up one point short of the title falling to one of the oil-backed teams in Manchester City. But they went on to win the Champions League in almost like a you know a destiny type run, including falling yeah. down three nothing against Barcelona, and really just was as, as you talk about Jurgen Klopp, the manager, his the way he communicates with the media and through the fans or to the fans through the media is unbelievable as well. Saying that like you know we're down three nothing, we're probably not going to win, but we're going to go out. And I think and I think that the quote was like we're going to go out and fail beautifully. Like that was just such like a beautiful quote and just such a meaningful, like I like, I kind of like felt that in, in a way, like when he said that, just going, just what, just when you're watching them go on this Champions League run and go into that game against Barcelona, just what were you feeling? And then just your emotions as the game was unfolding and you're fighting your way back. Yeah. I mean, just speaking, I mean, speaking about Jurgen Klopp and his, his mentality quickly, I mean, it's it's infectious. I mean, it, you, it doesn't matter who you support or what, what sport you're watching. I've made a comment about it before, but he's just one of those coaches where you're just like, he's just got, he's got the tools, he's got yep. the it factor. Um, so that's where that's coming from. But as far as the game and individually and there's the Champions League run, like, that season was really special. Like, despite the fact that we did not win the, the title and we, you know, we came up short, very, very short, um... We, uh, I think it was just, you could see how well the team had developed up until this point. And it really came to the Champions League to really, you know, put that display on, on just a, a larger scale. Um, and I think, you know, the Barcelona game is just like, I mean, you, you can't, you almost can't even write that. That's no. like more than the fairy tale, you know, yep. down against arguably the, the greatest player of all time, right? Who, basically just made a fool of you at his own place uh-huh. and now you're Lionel coming Messi. back and you're you know messy and and now you know you're you're kind of you know you're back against is against the wall at anfield which you know has become a fortress and they also haven't lost i don't think competitively have lost a game until only recently against atletico madrid for you know over somewhat like three years yeah um dating back to crystal palace in like 2017 but you know, I mean, I was, I couldn't watch it because I think we had, we yeah, had like a, dinner. it was a banquet dinner yeah. and I was sick of that. <laughs> we were definitely, I was definitely listening to it in the car yep. and like the connection was poor on my phone. So I couldn't even watch it. It was basically listening on the radio. And I mean, just like on edge, but just hype, mm-hmm. like goal after goal, which most of the goals came in the second half. Um, but just unbelievable, and you could feel it. It was it was one of those games where you could literally feel the crowd, and you could feel the anticipation, and you know the commentators were really. I mean, they really had drawn me in, and you know the the famous Trent goal, mm-hmm. um, you know corner taken quickly, Origi, 
I mean, you can never forget that. You can never, ever, ever forget that. It's just an incredible feat. Um, and it was, you know, it's a, it a fairytale one, and it was really a coming out party mm-hmm. for the world. And just, and, and, and just for any coaches just of any sport, like when you watch that play, what, what sticks out most was that that was just a complete in, instinct play that Trent yep. Alexander-Arnold made. He saw the defense wasn't paying attention. So instead of taking the time and doing the normal setup for a corner kick, he just said, if you're not going to pay attention, just played with instinct, just played free. You can do that in any sport. And that's where like yep. the magical moments happen. And just for anyone who hasn't seen it, go on YouTube, look it up. You're going to see grown men crying in the stands in, yep. in response to, to the victory. So you guys go on, you win the Champions League. Uh, everyone in sports, Elijah, knows that winning is harder then you know winning the first one is hard winning the second one is really tough as 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 the champions league season unfolded this year obviously you're at you're at the top of the the english league just what was that like you know and now like you're trying to repeat right um i mean i mean you take it i mean one of the beautiful things about this team across all all these past like three four seasons the mentality was always game by game and you know, you finish the season and you win the championship. And I was—I forget who exactly was saying this. I was watching kind of the aftermath after the Man City um, Chelsea game when the championship was confirmed. But they were talking about, you know, I think it was uh, Graham Lassell who who commentated that game. But he was talking about just how things move quickly, right? And and you gotta stay present, you know. And they, they talked about Manchester City repeating, and you know how they're kind of you know, a well-worked team who kind of moves on to the next aspect and continues to kind of just be present in every moment and finding time to celebrate it as well, too. So I think that type of mentality that Liverpool has adopted where it's kind of just been a game-by-game, you know, moment-by-moment kind of grind, mm-hmm. you know, builds the team for the ability to, you know, go out and be successful. Um, sure. I think some of the more successful teams definitely apply that. So. Um, for sure. So even though you guys fell short in the Champions League, losing at home to Atletico Madrid, and I think it was the last Champions League game before the virus shut everything down, domestically in, yeah. in England, the team, you know, in just one word, is just extraordinary this year. At the time that we're recording on Monday the 29th, they have seven games to go in the season. Liverpool has won 28 games, tied two, and only lost once. They have scored the second most goals in the league at with 70, and they've conceded the fewest. Just yep. you're watching them, as you said, it's a week in, week out. We're taking every game with the same focus, but you're watching your team basically play a perfect season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 really. I mean, I was watching this season, and it's like I was like, were they ever going to lose? Like you go <laughs> every game, and you're just becoming numb to the fact. It's like I forget what losing feels like. Right, and that sounds super conceited and, and big headed, but it, I mean the way the way that their form was going, it was incredible. You mm. know, um, I mean, just remarkable. I mean, they, they still have records to beat. I mean, I think they've they've won the title the fastest. The fastest. It's seven game remaining. It, it beats the I think the mark by Man City mm. and Manchester United with five remaining, and they still have like four or five other records to break. Um, and it's it's just I mean totally remarkable. It's really. You know, you could, I think I'm going to make a pretty strong argument about this definitely going down as uh, one of the greatest his, uh, teams in, you know, Premier League history, but then also yeah. just in the domestic league. I mean, this is one of the greatest seasons the world has ever seen. That's for sure. Yeah, that 
that's definitely 100% true. And, you know, the team now is so good. We've mentioned Timo Werner, who is a star German forward. In the last month, he announced that he was going to be joining Chelsea next season when it seemed for months he was linked to and it seemed like he was going to join Liverpool for, for months. And basically his quote about why he ended up choosing Chelsea was like, I'm not going to start at Liverpool. Like, I need to play. And at Chelsea, I actually have a chance that I'm probably going to start and play pretty much every game. At Liverpool, I'm going to have to come off the bench. Just is it weird now as a fan to be in a place where just some of the best players are turning you guys down by basically basically just because you're too good? I mean, it comes it comes with the reality. It's like, um, I mean, in, in one essence, as a fan, I'm like, you know, we're beating every we're beating everybody yeah. at this point. So it's like, you know, it's give or take. I mean, I, I can't be say that I'm not frustrated at all because you want to you want to see this team, you know, gain some depth. I think that's one of the things I feel like Liverpool needs to work on. But um, like I said, it's that business model that they're really strict to, and it's and it's no surprise is why they're having their successes because they've been so disciplined with it, um, and that comes in the likes of you know kind of taking taking the bullet with with Timo Werner and, and letting him go. Um, because I know for a fact that, you know, there have been other players down the road that we've been linked with and then, you know, time moves a little bit on and we make, you know, a couple signings here and there, you know, a small signing of Allison and Virgil van Dijk. Um, and you know, you see where that leads us. So, I mean, it's, it depends on how you look at it, but I, right. I feel for Liverpool, it's, it's a little bit different than it might be for okay. some of these other clubs. Okay. And, and my last question here, E, you know, in every championship winning season, it feels like you know there's always great moments throughout, but there's always one that sticks out to the fans, and it's not always the game where you clinch it. It could be a regular season game, you know, just right. a moment during game. Just is is there a favorite game or moment from from this past title winning season that that just sticks out to you uh, that just kind of exemplifies what this team is is all about? I think. I mean. It's it's hard to say to pick one moment because it's just been such such a consistent um, consistent grind and consistent performances. But I would even go as far as to say this last game against Crystal Palace. Yeah, you know, you give the circumstances of coronavirus and what what it um, what it's done to really all all of sports. You, you come off that break, your first game is the Merseyside Derby. You draw, and it was kind of an underwhelming you know game for for any any watcher, you know, both the supporter and the neutral. And then you come back and you come back to Anfield where you have an opportunity to control your own dentist destiny, win the game, and you do it in a style where you score basically four world-class goals. Um, and, and none of them, and, and the whole for 90 minutes, after kind of coming underwhelmingly against Everton, you press Crystal Palace to the point where they don't even touch your, your box. And, and Allison doesn't even have to come out and make any type of save, barely even touch the ball for the entire second half. I mean, that's just testament to the team and yeah. the type of mentality and what, what they're about. Um, and I think it's, it's signs of what's to come and how you know what they're going to do in the future. But definitely that Crystal Palace game I would pick. Well, E, I'm pumped you were able to join me today. Congratulations again on the title. And you know things, things are looking better here in New York City, so, so hopefully we'll be able to catch up in person uh, sometime in the, in, in the coming months. Yeah, thanks, David. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, and I look forward to having some some interactions, in-person interactions very, very soon. For sure. That'll do it for today's episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And you can subscribe, rate, and review. 
five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.